The title of tonight's talk is Investigating Reality, Applying Dhamma Vijaya. Sayato Utachaniya says, Investigation is cultivating wisdom. It is the wish to understand. Dhammavijaya, exploring reality, is the second quality of awakening. It needs the first quality of awakening, namely mindfulness as a basis. <coughs> and Nyanatiloka Mahatera, the German pioneer of Western Buddhism, defined Dhammavijaya as mindfully investigating, exploring and contemplating with insight the teachings, Dhamma with a capital T as we do it in the West, as well as the phenomena or experience of existence, also Dhamma with a small d. Investigation of Dhamma or Dhamma Vichaya in Pali is the quality of mind that examines explores and looks closely at all the experiences we are aware of. It is often described as a synonym of insight or vipassana or also sometimes panya, wisdom. So what do we do? Oh, what's that? It's just one person. Okay. Can you talk to them? Tell them there's a volume button where you can go up. Hope it works. Mindfulness is uh, an essential prerequisite for a liberating practice but is far from being sufficient. We need to understand how things function. And this is the job of Dhamma Vijaya, or Vijaya for short. Investigating, distinguishing and understanding. If, for example, we want to initiate a project, say start a company or wish to trade in valuable goods, we need extensive knowledge in order to be able to proceed correctly. Without this, we could easily be ripped off or suffer big losses. The same is true for our practice. Investigation, therefore, is a very important active function of the mind. Its task is to shed light on the object or to shed light on the present experience. Just as a light at night allows us to clearly see all things in the lit-up environment, so Vijaya allows us to see clearly the objects of the moment-to-moment experience, just as they are. 
That's why Vichaya is compared to a lamp. It is this quality of investigation that awakens us from the sleep of delusion. It is said that the meaning of Dhamma-Vichaya refers to both the explorations of Buddha's teaching, that's not so much what we do here, as well as the investigation of immediate experience, and that's mostly what we do here. Immediate experience in one's heart and mind. I think a clear understanding of the teachings is essential if we are to progress in our practice. Otherwise, we are like travelers who want to reach a certain destination without knowing where it is and how to get there. Vichaya expresses itself as unconfused clarity and is therefore compared to an expert guide. She is acquainted with the local situation, has the necessary information and knows the way to where we want to go. She also knows what is worth visiting and what is worthy of our attention. In this sense, Vichaya is compared to a good guide. Sayadaw Tejaniya writes, With interest and investigation, there is wisdom. Effort alone, without wisdom, the way people generally understand it, is associated with strained activity, because it is usually motivated by desire or by greed, and by aversion, by delusion. Effort with wisdom is a healthy desire to know and to understand whatever arises without any preference for the outcome. I think that's a key statement. Interested in what's going on and not in what we can get from it. It's not about intellectual examination and reflection or a theoretical understanding of the nature of things. Rather, it is a direct observing of the moment-to-moment experience with the question of what kind these experience, of what kind these experiences are. Investigation looks one at how things function and secondly, explores the nature of experience rather than just its content. Sayadaw Tejaniya again. Wisdom means investigation. It is the desire to understand. Once there is interest in investigating, the mind is no longer involved in what is happening and it takes on on an object, on a objective view. As soon as we have any vested interest in the results of our investigation, we can no longer see things as they are. I think it's interesting to look because most of the time we have a vested interest in the outcome of what we're doing rather than just exploring. He says, Wanting to understand is wisdom. Wanting results is greed. 
Dhammavichaya is the factor that makes up the difference between insight meditation or vipassana, what we hopefully do now, and samatha meditation or collectedness or concentration meditation, which we did last week. It's a very useful tool for practice, samatha. Samatha means to perceive an object with collected attention. Very useful. But focusing on the breath or on another object like we did with compassion last week does not yet lead to liberating insight. This requires a form of insight meditation or vipassana. The purpose of which is to explore the characteristics of all things, of all experience. Here, I feel it should be said once again that meditation without Dhamma-Vijaya is not really Vipassana meditation. It's a common misconception to think that the so-called mindfulness meditation, which is quite widespread today as we know, is the same as Vipassana. I'd say this is only the case if Vijaya and the other qualities of awakening, there are five more, are consistently cultivated. Then it is Vipassana independently of what it is called. It has those characteristics specifically investigation. These qualities of awakening, that is the qualities that must be present in our minds in order for deeper insights to arise, are mindfulness, then investigation, this one, which I am, enthusiastic endeavor or effort, joyful interest, calm, collectedness, and equanimity. It's seven. The three qualities of mind, investigation, enthusiastic endeavor or effort, and joyful interest, function in an energizing, arousing way. While the three, calm, collectedness, and equanimity, they have a calming, centering, and a relaxing effect. And mindfulness sees what is missing, and what needs to be strengthened. So investigation is an energizing, stimulating quality of mind. It must be cultivated through continuous and careful attention to the moment-to-moment experience. That's what we do here. So this kind of investigation is like a clever Business person, it's like a lamp, it's like a good guide. So question, what is being investigated? There are several important aspects of practice that require careful observation, examination and investigation. One is the area of unwholesome and wholesome intentions behind our actions and our harmful or beneficial habits. It's one area that's really important to investigate there. 
But for the path of inner liberation, also the investigation of the nature of all things is indispensable. Namely, the ex- examination of the nature of our sense experiences, of feelings and thoughts, and their characteristics, such as their impermanence, their unsatisfactoriness, and their non-self-existence. In fact, except for the samatha meditation, the meditation of collectedness, there's hardly a field of practice in which investigation is not important or essential. From this point of view, the term vipassana has a very similar meaning to dhamma-vichaya, the investigation of reality. Now on to investigating the intentions behind our actions. All our thoughts, words and actions are shaped by the intention behind them. Carol, Carol spoke about it, but I don't remember whether it was in this retreat or, or last week. <laughs> so maybe she spoke about it. Um, Effective practice means that we consistently observe and sense which kind of intention is working behind our present actions. An unskillful or harmful one or a wholesome, skillful one. An action here refers to physical or bodily action, but also to speaking, to speech, as well as to thought, to thinking and the intention behind either one of those three areas. It is the intentions that shape the consequences of our actions, the consequences for ourselves, and to some extent, the effects on on others. A statement by Chaim Jinot, or however you pronounce his name, describes this as follows. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess a tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an an instrument of inspiration. I can Humiliate or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated, or a person will be humanized or dehumanized. I like this statement. It's very much to the point. Unwholesome intention and motivations, which create suffering are desire, attachment, stinginess, aversion, irritation, anger and hatred and envy and jealousy and conceit and delusion and many more. 84,000. Recognizing them when in action is one of the hallmarks of a beneficial practice. Wholesome or Skillful intentions, motivations are generosity, kindness and affection, tolerance, compassion, sympathetic joy, 
equanimity, truthfulness, liberating insight, and many other wonderful qualities of heart and mind. When we see and feel again and again in direct experience how unwholesome intentions create suffering for ourselves and for others, when we see and feel it, then the kind of wisdom arises which increasingly leads to renunciation from these motivations. More and more there's a sense when the intention comes up, we think, okay, drop it. Because we already know it doesn't help, it doesn't feel good, it doesn't seem proper. And quite sometimes we miss them or they're stronger and we act on them. Very interesting area of practice. When we see that, that means that we also see the noble, so-called noble truth of suffering and of its causes in action. That's for the specialist. We can see there is suffering and we understand what made it come into being. In practical terms, this means that we see what motivates us, for example, before we speak. Is it benevolence? Is it self-centeredness? Is it resentment? Or we feel what our intention is like before we eat? Is it expectation? Is it greed? Or is it something else? In our meditation, are we interested in the experience of this moment as we sit or walk? Or is it only of interest because it could possibly lead to another, hopefully more pleasant experience? Do we want to know or do we want something better? I mean, I think it would, it's natural and I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> one may come to practice meditation because, and you can read that in some of that ads, you know, because it leads to pleasant states of mind. I hope this is true to some extent. But to see, to look, what is is it that we're really interested in? Or another kind of investigation. Do we lean forward with anticipation? I mean, when we sit there, it, it doesn't look like we lean forward. But it might be just a little, you know, it just, I'm not quite with this moment. I'm already with the next. I'm already with, hopefully will come or what is supposed to come, or what I'm afraid it might come, meaning leaning slightly backwards, you know. I'm not with this moment, but with what might come, you know, if they don't ring the bell or whatever. It's interesting to observe. You don't need to change it. See it, feel how it is, what it does. That's more interesting. I think here we need a lot of honesty in order to see clearly what is going on. And uh, 
Self-discovery is not always good news, as somebody said, but it's interesting. And what we need the least here is self-criticism or condemnation. The mind does that, but it's really what prevents clear-seeing and in itself it creates suffering tendencies. Like sometimes we almost feel like we should criticize ourselves or we should condemn ourselves. And often it just happens before we know this comes bang, stupid or whatever. Again, you know, get lost, come back, get lost again. We can't just stop it, but to notice it and see what it what it does with us. And also if you can, don't believe what it says somebody's voice from your childhood or something. Very interesting. In reverse, if in direct experience we see and feel again and again how wholesome, skillful intentions create well-beings for ourselves and for others, then the kind of wisdom arises which increasingly leads to a tendency towards more wholesome inner attitudes. Because we feel, it's not the theory, we see and feel what it does. And that convinces the mind or the heart to go there more often. This means that we recognize the noble truth of liberation from suffering and the noble truth of the path that leads to liberation of suffering for the specialists. It's the third and the fourth of the four noble truths. We perceive directly and consciously what generosity, benevolence and honesty and so forth do to us. In this way we get motivated to continue to cultivate this, these wonderful qualities. And this in turn creates desirable neutral, neural, sorry, pathways or networks in our brain or whatever it's called. And Positive tendencies for our life. So, recognizing unwholesome and wholesome intentions or motivations. That's one important area. Another one is identifying harmful, destructive patterns of behavior. Mindful investigation also allows us to recognize our destructive habits more easily. Do we see typical patterns of wasting our time with senseless activities? Do we cultivate patterns of looking away and of suppression when we should actually confront our feelings or emotions? Just to see it, not yet to do anything about it. Are we caught in eating or drinking habits that are detrimental to our health? Do we have a habit of imagining troublesome scenarios? Or, the other hand, are we chronically careless? There's a Garfield cartoon that uh, I like as an example. You know, the cat is lying in the box thinking 
Another sleepless night when all the weight of the world is pressing down on one's shoulder. For example, what if the refrigerator were to explode? The mind projecting. Or we of, are we often caught in wishful thinking? How nice it would be if only. I think that's the key word. If only. If only I could buy all I could buy, all I could do, or all the people I could support. Let's say if I were to get the jackpot or whatever, chances are 1 to 14 million. And I actually never buy a lottery ticket, but we can still, you know. We're rarely that extreme, but it might still be worthwhile to investigate our how great it would be if only. It can be with so many things. Just, oh. See what that does to us. Then, other patterns, do we listen to others carefully and do we ask questions or do we mainly talk about our own interests and our opinions? Interesting to look. Are we often complaining about the world, politics, the climate or our fellow human being? Or do we just not want to face the problems and sufferings we meet? Look there. We learn to see whether and how we are identified and involved with these ways of being or acting. We see whether we experience them as I or me, or whether we see that they are simply ways of being, simply emotions, feelings, not more and not less, and see how they arise by themselves and how they also disappear by themselves. It's conditions that come together. It's habits that come up. When we see them, don't get caught with them. We don't need to get rid of it. We just only don't buy into them. It's actually a way of relating to what Joseph Goldstein calls letting go by letting be. Many of us, certainly myself, I, I would, you know, teach letting go if something is not that is occurring is not helpful. We actually don't need to do anything whatsoever, except for being mindful, knowing that it's there, and not going for it, not acting on it, not buying it, and it'll go by itself. It's nothing we need to do. There's no thought, no intention know anything in our hearts and mind that is going to stay. And how many thoughts do we have in, in, during meditation? Or we think it's really difficult, or this is really bad, or some story. And then 20 minutes later, or even 5 minutes later, the gong goes, and we never ever remember that we had that thought. It's so thoroughly gone. Letting go by letting be. Whatever the patterns and habits we recognize, it's important that we do not, as so often, immediately plunge into self-improvement activism. 
Now we start to see and understand things or things are not useful or not helpful or painful and then we rush into activity. Rather these are the moments when we can fathom and feel what all this is doing to us. We can rely on the inherent wisdom of our heart-mind which will slowly but steadily change destructive tendencies because they've it feels that they are painful, that they're not useful. And positive tendencies are encouraged because feels, learns again and again that they have a more satisfactory, a liberating insight, uh, effect on us. I think we can trust that kind of wisdom that's inherent, that arises when we're really exposed in a clear and honest way to what's going on. Recognizing unwholesome and wholesome intentions, seeing harmful patterns of conduct. Then exploring the nature of thoughts. It's a particularly supportive practice, is the investigation of the nature of our thoughts. Since they are some of the formative elements in our lives. Once we learn to make our thoughts into objects of mindful awareness, we begin to see two aspects. One is we become aware of the content of our thoughts and of the areas we mostly dwell and roam. I would say it's probably top five where we mostly spend our time. Have a look, we can number them. And secondly, we begin to recognize the nature of thoughts. We perceive their fleeting, ungraspable, empty nature. Dingo Kensirinpoche writes, When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can close ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. And I would say certainly during this present life. And that does not mean that thoughts cannot be very useful if applied in skillful ways. But we have to also recognize what their nature is and to which extent we want to apply them and use them but not to get caught by them. Thoughts have the power to plunge us into trouble but they can also make us happy. They can be very useful. It is through the insight into the emptiness of our thoughts and through the end of identification with them that we attain more inner freedom. So again, recognizing unwholesome and wholesome intentions, seeing harmful patterns of behavior, exploring the nature of thoughts.
along with the exploration of the wholesome and the unwholesome, and thus the karma, observing and investigating the characteristics of existence is the most important function of Dhamma-Vijaya. Wholesome, unwholesome, and what life is made of. A characteristic or property of all things, of all living beings and situations in existence is the fact that they are unstable and impermanent, in constant change, as we notice when we are mindful. Every experience without exception arises on the basis of conditions and as soon as the conditions disappear, the experience changes just to finally pass away. Rumi describes it in this way. He says, Phenomena come marching in one by one. As soon as one is here, the next one shouts, Get out! It's my turn now. You see, from morning, noon and night, moment to moment, stuff comes, goes, comes, goes, comes, goes. And then, of course, certain things we repeat over and over and we think they're permanent. Not to be fooled. This fundamental and this indisputable dynamic characteristic of existence can be explored and perceived at various levels. In fact, impermanence and change are glaringly obvious. Every day we experience them, experience them in nature. The weather, from beautifully sunny and warm to dark and cold. The trees, flowers and fruit that sprout, bloom, ripen and wither again. Change is constant and inescapable. And we find this absolutely normal, not particularly noteworthy, until something changes or passes away that we cling to and that we want to keep. Suddenly we wake up to that fact. Then we are disappointed, frustrated, or even angry. I find that so interesting. You know, we take it for granted it does that until grasping is there for something we want to keep. And in small things that happens a lot of times. Big things, that's when it gets dramatic. We know that everything is changing, but we don't try too often to confront this lawful this lawfulness in a truly unbiased and profound way and also quite rarely draw the logical consequences. Doing just that is a function of Dhamma-Vichaya. Impermanence is also an unalterable fact in our human lives, as we know, of course. The well-known Zen master Suzuki Roshi described our lives as follows. It's like entering a ship that puts to sea and sinks. Other than that, he he was a really wonderful and (laughs) friendly Zen master. (laughs) But it's right. I mean, there's a little bit happening in between (laughs) Ryokan, the Zen poet, describes it a little more uh, romantically in his haikus. He says, Months pass by, days pile up like one intoxicated dream 
an old man's sighs. Counting days is like snapping one's fingers. Even May passes like a dream. Impermanence can become visible in even more impressive ways when practicing moment-to-moment mindfulness by focusing mindfulness and interest on the immediate experience, which is what we do here, or what we try to do here. And here it becomes apparent that what we normally perceive as our solid world is a never-changing stream of sensations from moment to moment to moment, of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, thinking and feeling, and emoting. This needs to be practiced in most cases for most of us for a long time in a continuous way until it becomes a gut feeling. Impermanence is so obvious and yet the following obstacle stands in our way. We tend to fall back on the level of content much of the time, of concept. We think the reality and there we don't see that it changes constantly. We see general changes but not the moment-to-moment change. We pay attention to what we see instead of the fact that we are seeing Notice when you open your eyes and you're mindful or when you're out there. It's like we notice the mountain, Eiger or Jungfrau over there, instead of the event of seeing. See, that's different. We're caught there and we don't notice that seeing is taking place. We... focus on what we hear instead of... process of hearing. We already introduced that. A car driving by, that's what we focus on instead of the process of hearing direct experience. (laughs) I think because if I say the process of hearing, it's again an idea. Okay, it's that sound where the mindfulness lands on. That means direct experience. In this way, we endlessly overlook the pervasive reality of constant change. Here we may lack an understanding of the whole process of insight. Maybe we lack a deep interest in investigating the nature of experience per se rather than its contents, its stories, and its dramas. An example of the difference between identification and immediate perception in meditation might look like this, and that's what I just showed before, but I'll try again. A car drives by. Okay, relax. car drives by. Who could it be? Oh, and now the engine is idling. Oh, maybe it's the parcel postman. What could it be that is bringing? Okay? The same as immediate experience. Noise, hearing, 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 thought, 
Oh, a car drives by. Thought, who could it be? Noise, hearing, hearing. Thought, oh, the car engine is now idling. It must be stopping there. Thought, perhaps it's the parcel postman. Thought and feeling, oh, curiosity is happening. See, that's the direct experience. We see one of the other rather than think what is happening. doesn't mean the thoughts are not there. It's just that we see each part of the process for what it is. What is the purpose of deeply understanding or of seeing impermanence? Where I live, there flows a wide river with strong currents. On certain hot summer days, crowds of people float downstream in rubber boats. Great summer pleasure. It's really uh, uh, liked by hundreds or thousands of people. The whole thing looks harmless, and it is harmless, until a boat is pushed against an obstacle, until a boat is pushed against a rock or an embankment or a gravel bank, and suddenly the incredible force of the flowing river becomes apparent. It's a strong force, I can tell you. Boats are pushed into the depth or capsizing or sinking, and sometimes people get injured and some even drown in the river, actually 25 a year. As in the river, so in our life. Staying on course must be learned so that we are quick in letting go in emergencies instead of the suffering of resistance, of holding on, of pushing and fighting against the current. As long as everything flows along fine, it's no problem. It's wonderful. As soon as it does something else that, than what we want, the struggle starts. And there is good to already know things follow their own lawfulness and they change constantly according to causes and conditions. So much for the investigation of impermanence. Now when we look directly at the flow of experience, it becomes increasingly clear that no experience can ever give lasting satisfaction. Lasting, okay, it can give moments of satisfaction, but it doesn't last because things are impermanent. Because if everything keeps, keeps coming and going, how could it? Here we can ask ourselves, I think it's a hot question, do we really want to see and acknowledge the fact of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, and even of suffering? To be honest, it took me years to be willing to really look at it. Yet it was so obvious. Are we really ready to apply Dhamma Vichaya here? If we allow ourselves to see and feel dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or sometimes suffering, it can save us from much desire and particularly from attachment and thus can save us from a lot of suffering. And here too, vichaya investigation is required. Otherwise, not much will change in our usual way of being. 
So we look at impermanence, we look at unsatisfactoriness. To the extent that we stay mindful at the immediate level of experience, it becomes apparent that everything that happens inside and outside on all channels of the senses and the channels of thought and feeling is a process of conditioned arising and disappearing. Also the idea, the thought, the feeling of here being someone or here, up here, wherever, someone solid, someone unchanging behind all these processes, namely I. That's also just part of this process of arising and disappearing. It is part of the same ungraspable show. This insight too is liberating, as the Buddha confirms. When one looks at impermanence, the perception of non-self is strengthened, meaning that there is no solid somebody behind our experience. If one perceives non-self, one removes the conceit of I am, which equals Nibbana, or you could say which equals liberation in this life. In this area, investigation is of the utmost relevance, but there is often a lot of of resistance. We prefer to strive for endless self-improvement, which is fine in itself, which we need, which is good, rather than to question the deep-rooted assumptions about the actual nature of our being. But that's exactly where our greatest potential for liberation would be. According to the traditional stage of insight in the Vipassana meditation, non-self can be experienced at a certain level of, of these stages. But many practitioners do not reach this level in meditation. It's a lot of long periods of meditation for most of us. However, they might possibly benefit from addressing the issue of non-self in a different way, and I'll make this short, but some of you already are working with that at times. For example, by asking the question, who sees while the process of seeing takes place? Or who hears during hearing? Who thinks during thought? And this, of course, is not to uh, produce wise theoretical answers. It's not you ask and then an answer comes. It's asking in the sense of looking, wanting to find out, wanting to know. So investigate the experience with interest. The consistent exploration of the the experience of a seeming I or self could be a quite liberating strategy in our Vipassana practice. Not as the one thing we do, but to always, again and again, if the interest is here, look, who is this fredness somewhere, you know, I don't know exactly where. As soon as you look for it, you can never put your finger on it. What does that mean? It's evasive. It arises, it feels very much like me. Particularly, you know, if you scold me or put me down, I become very me. And then it disappears again. 
And if you would say, oh, is this a great talk? <laughs> but it's just another piece of, of some, you know, sense of self or I that appears. To watch that, to see that, and not to buy into it. Not to believe in it anymore. Not to identify with it. It's not to change anything about it, but to see what it's made of. To recapitulate, the most important two areas of application of Vijaya are the unwholesome and wholesome intentions and their effects. That's one. And the recognition of the characteristics of existence of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and non-self. That's the two most important one. If you forget everything else, if you can remember those two. And because this is a bit much in this talk, it's still not finished, um, I put the main point out on the uh, bulletin board for you. If you're interested, you can look at that. Last one is asking questions. That's also from uh, Tejaniya. Vijaya, however, can and should eventually be applied in many more areas. Asking questions can be support can be a supportive tool. And in order to give an idea where this might be useful, here are some examples of questions that we can ask ourselves in the practice. Like the obvious question, is the present experience wholesome or unwholesome? Then feel, check. And here what is important, you're not asking, is this experience pleasant or unpleasant? That's a whole different story. That's what we are interested in really, pleasant. But this is the question, is it wholesome? Is it freeing? Does it lead to well-being? Or is it tightening? Is it narrowing? Is it, is it feel crummy, even a little bit? That's what we want to know. Or is the current feeling or emotion or sensation permanent or impermanent? And before we think, I know already, really look. Is there anything that stays the same? And you have to look on the immediate level. You feel it, then there's a thought about it, that's already a change. Then you feel it again, there's a reaction to it. So it looks like it always feels the same, but in fact there's this whole process of, you know, um, seeing it, experiencing it, thinking about it, reacting to it, wanting to change it, wanting to keep it, all that. It's all boom, 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 going on. Interesting. Or you can say, does it always say exactly the same? If there's a mind state that you think it's really bad, and I have that often, I'm such a, I don't know, a sad person. Have a look if it's still there when the the lunch bell goes or something. (laughs) It might, but, you know, things come and go, but it's rare that they just go through everything. So that's a question you can feel, watch, look what happens. Dhammavichaya also observes the feeling tones, the Vedanas, and I'm sure one of us will talk about it more which are the conditions that trigger the subsequent reaction, the turmoil or the desire, 
we ask, is the current experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And when we look at that, we can see whether there's a reaction to wanting to keep it, wanting to prolong it, or wanting to get rid of it, or being bored by it if it's neutral. That's an interesting question. It's also Vichaya which is interested in what our reactions to what's going on do to us and how they feel. Is my momentary reaction wholesome or unwholesome and how does it feel? When it is aversion, oh, that's not very wholesome. How does it feel? Tight or whatever, you know. How do I feel it? How do I feel aversion? I feel tight here. I feel narrow here, maybe my breath goes a little tighter or here or something here. To really actually investigate, not just to think, oh, it feels bad. Interesting. Or what I mentioned this afternoon, um, Carol mentioned it before, what is my inner attitude towards the present experience? And what does it do to me? You know, is it critical, is it aversive, is it open, is it welcoming? And then to feel, how is that? What? How does that feel? Or why is my mind, my mind suffering when there is suffering? Oh, attachment. If I could let go of this, which I'm not going to let go, suffering will go. I can pretend to let let it go. Suffering still here. If I accept the situation completely, the suffering is gone. That's an interesting question to look at. So much to observe, so much to learn. Asking questions, being interested, seeing what happens, seeing how it feels. I think practice can be extremely interesting or it can be quite tedious. It's mostly up to us. I'll end with another quote by Sayadota Chania, who in his teachings attaches great importance to the application of vichara, awareness with interest, asking questions, looking, how is it? He says, I discovered that one can find the answers through being aware and by questioning. Initially, in the learning phase, you'll have many questions, but once wisdom kicks in, you won't have that many. At that time, the mind will be clearer and less cluttered. And he closes by saying, and I want to close with this, the student is inside you. The teacher is also inside you. Thank you for your attention and interest. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.